You're listening to Two Sides of Phi, a podcast that follows two lifelong friends as they seek financial independence and to retire early. I'm Eric, and I'm joined by my friend Jason, who reached Phi in 2020. And this is our story. Yep, so another episode where I'm forcing you to check in on the stock market. Yeah, it's great. Thanks for giving me uh, reasons where I have to look at my portfolio, you <laughs> jerk. Something I try pretty hard not to do. Yeah, so how did it look? Uh, you know, it's down more <laughs> than it was the last time I looked. So uh, I, I don't want to say I'm surprised, but I don't exactly need to see the number because what am I going to do with it? I guess I guess we'll talk about it. We're in May of 2022 here, and the last kind of episode, which was prompted by me saying, hey, the market's down, man. Let's chat about that. That should be relevant. And just, you know, um, that was just in March. So just a couple of months ago, we're at May 10th, you know, and that was actually, I think it was March 9th that we, we chatted last. So I believe you. Yeah. Oh, man. Here we are again, Jay. Here we are. And this may, maybe this is just, just the second of, you know, 28 months like this. No, <laughs> for your sake and mine. I hope that's not true. Yeah. Well, I it at the um, I don't want to rehash everything that we talked about last time because I think that that's still a really relevant episode. And actually, I was looking through the comments of that just to see what other people had to say and yeah. their reactions to it. It was nice actually for me to hear not only just to talk that through with you, but also to hear the support and read the support in those comments and just hear how other people manage it and deal with it because there are a lot of people who are like you, like. I have a great plan. I'm just setting it and forgetting it. And I think that is great if you can do that. But there are also a lot of people that are like me that are worried, anxious, naturally. And um, there's plenty of people telling me just to chill out, which well, yeah, I, I hear mean, often. I, there's, there, there's merit to all of it, right? I mean, that's not to say that I'm not worried that we're entering a long downturn that turns into a recession, right? Of course, that's on my mind. But I know that today, the market doing what it's doing and what it has been doing lately, I'm not going to change anything this moment. Yeah, yeah. Which we'll talk about. But that answer will be different if things progress. Right? Yeah. And so I, I, that's kind of the next level of what I wanted to, that's the next place I wanted to take this discussion was, okay, we've talked about the broad overarching right. emotional aspects of a market downturn. And many actually in those comments said, Hey man, this is just a blip. And I think we mentioned that in that episode too, like zoom out. If you're ever feeling really worried, take that stock chart and just zoom out because you're going to recognize that this is actually a blip. And um, but it, it doesn't negate the fact that when you're in the moment, it can sting a little bit. And uh, I did want to dig in, drill into that, really the mechanics of things we can do maybe to be more proactive. Because in this situation for me, and I don't know how it is for you being post-fi, but I always feel better if there's something that I can actually do. So I was trying to think yeah. about different even if they're micro steps, things we could do. So how about you? I mean, what do you do in these kinds of situations? Do you literally just look the other way and say, mm, nothing? Is that your answer? <laughs> yeah, I pretend it's not happening. No. And and I think, you know, you, you hit on something without spelling it out exactly, but I'm sure it's on your mind too. And that is what we do and how we think about it is going to differ depending upon where we are on our pre-fi or post-fi journey, right? And, and what you do you know, within two years of your hopeful date versus someone who's 20 years or 15 years from their hopeful date, it's going to be totally different. So for me right now, 
you know, I have started with, you know, two years cash reserves when I okay. stopped my job about two years ago and I've done one refill since then. So okay. now maybe it's one and three quarter years or something like that. Right. Um, and I'm not selling anything right now for obvious reasons, right? It would be taking a loss that I don't need to take, but I am at least cognizant increasingly cognizant of the status of everything. So you know I like to talk about not looking at things all the time. And that's true. I don't. But I did certainly recently go in, do kind of an inventory. Where am I? How am I doing in terms of my asset allocation? Um, not that I would want to rebalance necessarily right now anyway. We can talk about that. But I'm thinking more like future looking. If this downturn yeah. continues, at what point will I think about, all right, I'm just going to keep riding this and let the cash bucket drain right. or am I going to have to at some point and when is that point think about refilling it that's kind of where I am right now yeah I was going to ask you about the actual mechanics of of refilling that bucket and and I know you this is all new to you but in principle how does that work are you just looking yeah. for market highs and you're saying okay this is an opportunity for me to, to fill this up so let's say you know December of last year Things are riding pretty high. I mean, you, of course, looking back, you're going to know that's the high point of the market. But how do you approach that? So I, I, there's a couple things that come to mind. The first is kind of like the trickle fill. So in my taxable account, as dividends are thrown off, I have them set to not be reinvested. And that's for a couple of reasons. And one of those is tax loss harvesting that we can talk about. But the other is it's an easy way if I don't want to buy something to send money to that cash bucket that I can then spend. And I didn't have to sell anything. Those dividends come no matter what tax realized or you know, what have you. But the second way I would refill it is selling. And so last year when the market was higher, did do some refilling by selling in my taxable account. Okay. Um, being mindful, of course, of gains and the tax treatment of those. That's important, of course. Um, but then the next opportunity to do it would be as a part of just normal rebalancing. So as my asset allocation moves sufficiently away from my target, I would consider selling something. So the overall strategy for me is keep an eye on it on at least a quarterly basis. And if I would need to do or want to do any rebalancing, that would be an opportunity potentially to send cash into that bucket uh, versus, you know, just chain buy something. And you and you're doing this in taxable because this is the, the phase that you're in, that you're in that sort of bridge period be before you can reasonably access you. I mean, you've opted not to access your uh, pre-tax accounts, right? You haven't done the sort of rule of 55 or anything like that. So you've set aside, That's right. you've created basically an off ramp for yourself in the taxable account to do that. And so, That's right. it, I mean, we always talk about trying not to be, trying not to time the market, but that is really, you are actually being opportunistic, right? In, in terms of how you're selling those things off. Yeah. And it's about, if you don't need to sell things, well, then just kind of wait. I think Fritz explains this from the retirement manifesto better than I'm going to. But the, the way I think about it is keep an eye on things quarterly. If market conditions are as such that I want to take money out of the portfolio, there are gains realized and, you know, I want to take them out and it will help me maintain my asset allocation anyway, take them out. Or if my funds are low enough such that I need to generate cash, well, then it's a no brainer, right? We need to be able to fund our lifestyle, even if we, you know, 
pull you know expenses in right spend less there's still money that needs to be generated but i suppose you're right I, I don't really think of it that way but you're accurate that it is a kind of timing the market to decide when to sell things and when to just let it go and i guess for me that's why i like having a long buffer you know it's and some people would say it's short right two years isn't very long yeah. but it's long enough that i can sort of see how, where things are going and make decisions periodically as to whether to sell them or not. If I think about holding two years worth of cash, what's the average bear market? Is it yeah. three? This table was making the rounds on financial Twitter today. It showed like the length of every bear market. And <laughs> of course, some of them, I'm looking at early 70s right here. Oh, geez. They're, re they're really long. Um, and so, yeah, you, you don't know, you know, what is what is long enough long enough to, to where you would, would get out of that situation, right? You know, but you can't know that. None of us have a crystal ball. Right. Two years isn't very long for most people. But cash is one part of your portfolio. I mean, you it also, is. And you also have things like bonds and treasuries, all those exciting things, right? So yeah, I presume if this rides out, let's say beyond your two years worth of cash, yeah. like what's that plan look like? Because I know yeah. you have a plan. I do. And I have, and thank you for being confident that I have a plan, but you know, I have this, you know, ballast, we often refer to it. I think I told, stole that word from you. I have that fixed income in my taxable account. I mean, it, it exists in various parts of my, uh, my, uh, you know, asset location strategy, yeah. but I have, you know, uh, intermediate term treasuries and a total bond fund that I can sell um, before I would have to even think about selling stock when I didn't want to, right? If the stocks are down a lot and I don't want to sell them, I have this. Now, of course, right now, somebody's starting to type a comment saying, well, bonds are down too right now, and they are. And sometimes they are more correlated, at least directionally, if not in magnitude, than other times. So right now, both are down. I'm glad I don't have to sell anything, but very often, as people run from volatile equities to fixed income, they will stabilize, uh, certainly, or they'll be down less than stocks are. Right. And I would sell those. Yes, I would not have to sell my equities. And if we think back to Fritz's bucket strategy, which I know you're employing and I plan to employ, yeah. cash is the is bucket number one, right? That's, That's right. the bucket closest to you. That's where you're reaching in and you know funding your lifestyle, your everyday life with. That's right. Bucket two is the bucket you were just speaking about, right? These, yes. these assets like bonds, treasuries, things like that. And then bucket three are the stocks, right? That's and, right. And so it is this kind of strategic game of when do you dip into what bucket? Um, I mean, it's, it's obvious that you're going to be spending down the cash in a, in a, you know, prolonged downturn, but less obvious when you get to bucket number two, I would think. Yeah, I think so. But I think to another point that we often discuss is the, you know, having a cash position and, and is giving me optionality. Yeah, right. Right. So I don't have to do something right now. If I get to the point where I simply must do something right, I pulled other levers, decreased spending, you know, looked at <laughs> opportunities to bring in more income. Well, yeah, I'm going to sell bonds if both bonds and stocks are down. Um, but I, you know, I have options. The option here is to be able to wait right now because I am using my cash right. and I'm also, you know, maintaining my low withdrawal rate. I'm still withdrawing at below 3%. I'm at 2.7% on the year. So, um, I'm 
doing the things I think I should be doing right now, knowing that I have time on my side presently. Do you have any automated means for checking in on these things? Or is it is it really just like rebalancing, for example? Or yeah. is it you physically have to go in and look at your portfolio, which I know you're loath to do? Yeah, so I, I have a dashboard that I built, I know you'll be surprised, uh, in Google Sheets, uh, because I don't Ugh. pay for Excel these days. Um, but it I automatically pull in, you know, current stock values and, and such uh, using Google Finance. And that gives me a snapshot view at a glance of what's my asset allocation versus my targets. And I, this is this is something we could easily share, I think. Um, but then also how many years of cash right and fixed income in my taxable and so at a glance i can tell where are things relative to the last time i looked uh, i don't have to dig down another level if i don't want to and i often don't if I, if there's no utility in it but it's not automated per se eric but i can at least see what is happening and i have a simple modeler that i built in where i could look at the impact of you know buying or selling something and how that changes for example by asset allocation when we talk about rebalancing, that was one of the things that came to my mind as a okay. proactive step that I could do. You know, the idea with rebalancing is that you have a certain asset allocation. If it's a 50-50 uh, bonds to stock allocation, part of your portfolio that's allocated to stocks is going to, you know, over time outperform and become right. a greater and greater percentage of your portfolio. And so in order to maintain a similar risk profile, that 50-50 allocation, you have to over time rebalance the two. Um, that's right. And there's there's a lot of there's been a lot of sort of scholarly you know research done on this optimal rebalancing times and things like that. And oh yeah, I'll tell you, I was I was approaching it like, well, I I want to juice the returns here. I wasn't even thinking about risk. I was like, I don't care right. about risk. Like, okay, my bonds are naturally going to be, they're down, stocks are down. Well, maybe, you know, I'm outside of my seventy thirty allocation that I had set for myself, um, maybe I can sell off some of these bonds and get buy some of these stocks at a real discounted price, right? And that is not actually the, the purpose, having read a number of papers just that's recently, right. that's not actually the purpose of rebalancing. It's actually to reset your risk profile. Correct. That's right. And, and, and you, you said it all there. I mean, and, and this is the balance. It's definitely very clearly the balance for me right now. And it also is i'm sure what you're feeling with you know a couple of years to your target you know timeline the same thing you have to be thinking because it's so tempting this idea of like dry powder and yes. buying opportunity totally. and that's a very different calculus if you're 10 20 years from uh re early retirement versus oh boy i'm almost there right because you're trying to manage risk and that is absolutely what rebalancing is all about is maintaining that risk profile that goes to your asset allocation, which you set in your, you know, your, your individual, um, your investing philosophy statement. I'm always fighting with myself about risk though, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's cause you're so, so risk forward. Well, when things are on sale, I just want to buy, I just want to buy, buy, buy. Right. I mean, that's where we're at right now. And I think if you're like you said, pre, you know, pre-fi early, even mid-stage, like this is, this is an amazing buying opportunity. And if you have more to put in, now's the time to put it in, right? Um, within reason, obviously. I mean, for me, as I'm getting closer, I'm like, well, things are looking not so rosy right now. And it feels like the date is slipping further away from me uh, yeah. because the more I put in, the more it goes down. Um, 
And so I'm just looking for any kind of action that I can possibly take. Hey, Eric here with Two Sides of Fi, checking in with a quick request. Jason and I love making this show and sharing our conversations, but we need your help spreading the word. The best way to do that is to give us a quick rating and review on your podcast app of choice. And if you know someone on the Fi path, please hit that share button on your favorite episode. Every little bit helps. Thanks. Let's talk a little bit about the the mechanics of actually rebalancing because okay. there is some nuance to it, right? A, a lot is. of this research, like if you look at the Vanguard research, it's on like a 50-50 portfolio or a 60-40 portfolio, yep. uh, you know, stocks to bonds. Um, let's talk a little bit about the nuance of that. You know, when your portfolio gets to, let's say, 80-20 and you really wanted it to be at 70-30, like... How do you go about doing that? Yeah. I mean, for me, I think one of the most important lessons, and you already said the first one, which is this is about maintaining a risk profile. Yeah. I think the second one is about being consistent. Because when I read those studies, the ones you're talking about, the Vanguard one, uh, Michael Kitts has had a really good one a few years ago, um, you want to be consistent. Because the, the short answer from all those different simulations uh, was there's not necessarily an ideal frequency or sort of thresholding approach, right? If it changes up or down by this amount, that's ideal. Um, it's more, you want to come to a sensible strategy and be consistent with it. And so for most people, that means rebalancing at some regular frequency, right? Maybe once a year, maybe twice a year, maybe at most quarterly. Um, and then having thresholds, where if it is exceeded up or down, right, your asset allocation is uh, shifted by a certain amount up or down, then that triggers the activity. And so activity means buying and selling to reestablish the same blend that you had. So in your case and mine, 70, 30 uh, stocks to bonds. Right. Yeah. And it's important to, to look at that also like, you know, a 30. So if we say, look at some of the research that was done. And you and I both read Kitsis quite a bit, I think. Yeah, and, for sure. And I really like his, he's got just the right amount of detail in there, um, backing it up with studies and he's got charts and graphs. Um, yep. But it's also, he also pr provides an abstract. So it's, it's totally, <laughs> yes. the information, it really is, <laughs> it's really accessible. And yeah. so one of the things he was saying was, you know, it seems like there, there's an optimal he, and he did all this sort of back testing. Yes, he did. Of portfolios. Um, and so and we'll definitely link that up in the show notes uh, and in the description of the video below. Um, but he kind of settles on this optimal rebalancing strategy of like 20 percent up or down for your that asset classes allocation. Right. And it's relative Yes. To that percentage. And that's the important part. And I actually didn't fully appreciate that until I read his article. So if you have a 30% bond allocation, right, it's not going to be, you don't wait for it to get to be 50% 50. or 10% 10, <laughs> yeah. 10 to, yeah. you know, start the, the rebalancing procedure. It has to be 20% of the, the 30. So it's a, it's actually a much narrower band, right? So it's a 6% plus or minus. That's right. 24 that. to 36% in the example you gave. Yeah. Or, and so stocks would be the same thing, right? If it's a 70% allocation in your portfolio, 20% of that is going to be 14. So yep. plus or minus when you have, let's say you have a two fund portfolio, stocks and bonds, time to reallocate the bond portfolio, yep. right? Um, 
what do you do with it? <laughs> Naturally, you're going to move it into stocks, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you gotta. I mean, yeah. that's all. I mean, simple enough. That's what I do. I think the only thing that adds complexity, and and I know you haven't had to do much of this yet, but when you did your exercise that we talked about in previous shows, right, shifting from a 100 and zero to 70, 30, you know, you also have to take into account asset location. Right. Right. And so you could, you know, be creating taxable events. And if you can avoid those and you want to avoid those, you know, if you can use your retirement uh, accounts to do that, your tax deferred or your tax free accounts, like your Roth to account, you can do that too. But the, I think for me, that's where the complexity comes in, even for a two fund portfolio. But yeah, it should be that simple. Yeah. The, the one thing, and, and, you know, maybe people will appreciate this uh, more than I did before reading this article um, is that you're naturally shaving off return from your portfolio when you rebalance. Yeah. And, you know, they talk about many different st different strategies you can use. And actually, the the higher you let those bands tick. So let's say, you know, if it's 20 percent absolute, <laughs> you can your portfolio return is actually going to be higher over, over a longer period of time. It doesn't mean the risk adjusted return is going to be higher. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so that's yeah. kind of, that's the nuance there, but you get a higher portfolio total return uh, right. versus the risk adjusted return. But you know, if you are someone who's post fi and you need that money at a certain point, you know, that may not work for you. That, that yeah. may actually be a bad event for you. So it, it was interesting because, you know, you're obviously with rebalancing on a, you know, a market that's moving up, you're selling the winners and you're trading it for the losers. So, yeah. you know, um, which is why it's kind of psychologically okay for me right now when in a down market, it's like, well, I don't, I want to be able to pick up some, some extra stock in the portfolio, but th it's not necessarily going to juice the returns <laughs> in the that's way right. that I was initially thinking. The one exception to that is if you are trading assets that have a similar sort of risk profile. So if you're rebalancing within, say, for me, you know, VXUS versus VTI. So you're mm -hmm. going for an international fund and the total stock market fund. Um, that can have a juicing effect if you time it right. But again, here it's like <laughs> we're not trying to time the market no, necessarily. Um so it's I, it's nice having these rules. I actually really appreciated that Kitsis article because it's yeah. like, okay, here's a solid rule. And that's why I was asking you before, do you have some kind of like yeah. dinger on your <laughs> spreadsheet yeah. that says ding, 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 time to rebalance? Yeah, it's annual. For me, my, my intended approach is annual rebalancing and 20% relative thresholding. Okay. And I have yeah. my tool, the tool I was I'm mentioning, I probably wasn't as explicit as, as I needed to be, actually calls out, it throws a flag in, in red font if any one of those asset classes falls plus or minus 20% uh, or greater of my, of my targets. And okay. so then I'll know, okay, there's an opportunity to do something here and then I can model the impact of different decisions I might take. So yes, uh, my intended frequency is annually. I, I love that in in both articles, and uh, obviously we're going to link both of these, the Vanguard study and the Kitsis article, they, they say the same thing, which is irrespective of what you do, you should be consistent. 
But his article also does those, you know, simulations of, well, what if you rebalanced at every opportunity you could right. versus the, you know, the, the more the periods that we're talking about here, the, you know, twice a year, quarterly, annually, what have you. And, you know, risk adjusted return was was best under what we're talking about. So. So, yeah, that is how I will do it now that to, to your point, if you needed to sell, you know, you know, along the way to raise money for bucket one, well, you have an opportunity then to do rebalancing anyhow. Yeah. Um, right. Cause you, you're certainly not going to sell, you don't want to sell things that are going to put even more out of whack versus your targets. Uh, yeah, so. I, I really like that as the post fi strategy. That's, that's something I'm going to really um, make note of here. You mentioned that you had some, you have a spreadsheet, some low level automation in there. Um, I don't actually, use a spreadsheet for that. Although it sounds like I might need to, um, I've just been looking at it through personal capital. Do you ever, do you ever use that site at all? Yeah. I, I mean, I used to, until I built this spreadsheet, I exclusively used personal capital. I, it's oh, okay. so easy and I mean, it's free. Yeah. So, and personal capital, basically you link all of your accounts in there. So, I mean, you can link bank accounts, you can link crypto, you know, all of your brokerages and then it, does kind of a real time pull in of all the information that you have. And then what I like about it most is that when I'm looking at asset allocation, you know, I can go over to a listing of the accounts and I just click on asset allocation and I can see where my bonds are. You know, it's separating out between international bonds and government bonds and, you know, corporate bonds or whatever. It's, got, it's very granular um, in that way. And then there's a stock allocation, international stocks. And then obviously if you have ind individual stocks, which I don't, um, you can look at those too, but I just find that's a real handy tool to use. I think they have an app for your phone too. Yes, they do. Yep. And, uh, totally free. So, um, we, we actually have a link that if you want to use it and try it out, you can use our link, um, to sign up for it. And I think they actually have some advisory services too, depending on how much how, you know, the value of the accounts that you link into the site are, but yeah, definitely a useful tool. I will say, um, I went in there to look at it recently and it didn't fully categorize all of my like bond positions. So it okay. was actually leaving some of them out. Um, so something to pay attention to things weren't adding up. I was like, Oh wait, we're missing, <laughs> we're missing something here. So, um, no tool is perfect, but I really like for a graphical interface and a kind of broad brush overview. That seems good. You use your spreadsheet though to like if you want to rebalance into and you have a more complex portfolio, you actually do need some level that's beyond personal capital, right? Yeah, but I think, you know, given the sort of stage of the bulk of our audience and where they are on the journey, I think it's a, it's a really wonderful tool, especially for earlier stages. Um, but yeah, I like the main reason I like my approach is because I have a little bit more complicated. I still don't think it's complicated, you know, in terms of the number of funds. And I like the ability to sort of interactively plug in the, you know, potential buy or potential sale and see what it does to everything else. It just makes right. it easier to plan trades. Yeah. No, that's so that's why point. I have a spreadsheet approach. Yeah. I bought a really detailed spreadsheet, um, financial planning spreadsheet, and I love it, but man, it's taken me so long to really get my head into it and plug in all the data. And I, I could see once it's built out, it has like, I don't know, maybe 50 tabs at the bottom of this thing. It's like, oh 50. Yeah, it's a lot. Oof. It's a lot, but it, it captures all of the estate planning and college planning oh, okay. and, you know, a lot of different things. Um, but 
as part of that, it has an asset allocation and a rebalancing tool. So you put into your funds and everything. And then, you know, if you need to get back to a certain allocation, it'll tell you what to sell, what's overweight, what's underweight. Um, you can set different bands and things like that. So there are, there are a number of tools available and out there. Personal capital is free and could set it up this afternoon, basically. Yeah, and seems to be one of the most popular, honestly. It's talked about on most of the podcasts I listen to, and there's some pretty good guides out there as to how people use it as well um, for their FI journey. So that that also is always appealing to me if there's good information out in the community. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's many ways to do this. I don't personally use Wealthfront or Betterment, but I know right. there's these kind of robo-advisors, robo advisors, right? Um, and and they that's one of their their claims to, to their real value, right? They can do automated loss harvesting, um, and automated rebalancing. Um, I was actually looking some of those up today. That's like 25 basis points. A lot of those yeah. or, or more, um, or 30 or, I mean, the fees on those. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's significant. And I, I, I look at the difference between, you know, what you were just talking about in terms of the frequency of rebalancing and how it impacted portfolio performance over the long term. It's like, yeah. Oh, might as well just let it sit. <laughs> well, here's my thought on that. I mean, I the, I see the merit for or why people would find robo advisors attractive, right? The fees are relatively low compared to other approaches to getting, you know, support through advisors, planners. Like a one percent fee, for example. Yeah, right? no matter what yeah. kind they are, yeah. um, and it automates things that could be annoying to think about, or if you don't want to think about because you find them tedious, like loss harvesting. On the other hand. If any of your portfolio lives outside of a robo-advised account, you're now at risk for wash sales and and violating the wash sale rule, and that could be a real problem, right? I mean, is that? I mean, it'd probably be useful to explain that. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because uh, it may not fully capture other trades that you're making outside of this account, and if you are buying similar securities or the same security uh, within 30 days before or, 30, or selling it 30 days after. Yep. You're going to trigger this wash sale rule and effectively negate the the loss. Um, exactly right. You can't claim that loss. You're going to have that capital gain without the offset you were hoping for from loss harvesting. And so that's that's my concern. If people are using you know one of those robo advisors, but they still have other accounts and they're reinvesting dividends and yeah. things like that, all of those things. I mean, I triggered a wash sale within <laughs> within a month of going out on my own. Now it was, <laughs> yeah. it was a matter of, you know, a few, you know, it was dollars. It was something silly. Um, but so it was nothing big, but I mean, if, if, uh, if you don't have that set up, right. Yeah, that could be a problem. So it's at least, uh, something I'd put out there for anyone who is thinking of using or is using robo advisors, make sure you understand your full financial picture and avoid the the potential to have a, a wash sale rule violation. Yeah, totally. That's a good point. I am, uh, I mean, I want to do it manually just to understand it, if nothing yeah. else. Um, but also, you know, the manual process here of rebalancing can be as simple as, you know, if, like me, if I'm making regular buys, that's another way of rebalancing into this market. And Totally. One of the best ways for me to feel more proactive at this time, feeling like, okay, oh, I can actually affect some change here and feel in control, uh, even when the markets are kind of re- really volatile right now. Absolutely. Well, and you know, when I, I was thinking when you were saying that, like, this is one of the advantages of having 
you know, a simplified portfolio like you do, sure. whether it's a lazy three fund or four fund or whatever, when you go to rebalance, if one thing goes out of whack and you you don't have, you don't have to adjust all these different things that could have moved, you know, small amounts, but enough to trigger, Oh, okay. Now it's out of whack. The simpler it is, the easier all those supporting tasks are. And that's, that's a good thing. Yeah, that's a good point. What are, what are some other opportunities people could look at here? I was thinking Roth buys would be, I mean, this is this is a great time to get money into a Roth, whether you're going to do that through the back door or you can just fund it directly. Yeah, well, I think particularly if you're, you know, earlier on your yeah. FI journey, this is a buying opportunity, right? Everything is on sale. You can, Roth is, a, it's a great time to take advantage of Roth. Maybe just overall, is there a way to increase your savings rate, even if it's temporary, right? Can you delay you know, purchases you were thinking about making, um, you know, take advantage of those low prices if you're able to seems like a very opportunistic case for me. And I'm seeing evidence of that, you know, online people talking about it. I think some of them are equally as worried about what it, you know, it bodes for the future, but they're still taking advantage of like right now I can, um, I can get some sale prices. Yeah. And it, it, it actually does. I mean, we should mention, putting some rules in place on that too, because I remember Fritz when he was talking with us oh, was yeah. saying like, well, yeah, the first time the market dropped, I think was, I forget what this is in 2008 or when it was, but you yeah, know, I went, I, think it was. I went in with a bunch of cash and then, you know, it dropped again and I went in another and, you know, pretty soon he was out of all dry, the dry powder he had and the market still had a ways to go. So even though sometimes this market can feel volatile and like, it's just going down, 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 down. Yeah. When you zoom out, it's not really that much of a hit, you know, 20% yeah. market correction, 30% down. Like you, you got, you have to expect that in, in a 10 year period. Right. I mean, totally. Yeah. So, um, set some rules up and he did have a good, uh, rule set with respect to that, you know, for every 1% that the market went down, he went in on his cash, his dry powder position, he went in a certain percentage. Um, and I just like with all of this, it's like, okay. You get to this situation which doesn't feels out of your control. Put a rule set around it, and then yes. you start to rest back that control. It just feels like, for me, it's kind of like creating this armor around me. It's like, okay, I can I can survive this. You know, it feels just feels yeah. better to me. I think the more rule sets you can have, the better off you're going to be. I mean, you don't want this to be some like you know you know huge pile of you know rules that create just work exactly. for you. But I mean, I've seen investment policy statements, IPSs, that actually have some rules in them, not just their asset allocation, but also I will do this when this happens and just have a few of those kind of core things in there. It's a good reminder to yourself over time too. Um, you know, what are the bounds? I What are the, you know, the, the, the practices I put in place in the, so that I'm consistent with them. Do you, um, do you ever consider using some of your cash position to do that at this point? It's tempting. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it is tempting. I, I know that I shouldn't. Yeah. And so I have not. I mean, the one thing I did do, Eric, and I don't think we've talked about this on the show yet, is I did take um, $20,000, $10,000 each for me and my wife, Lori, and took them out of cash reserves and put them in I-bonds. Okay, interesting. Because, yeah. you know, again, if you have two years of cash, well, we can afford to wait a year for a portion of that. And I know that this isn't like 
you're not talking about big, big, big gains here, but it's what now nine points, nine point three percent. Yeah, like so I'll get the six months of the one and six months of the other. Right. Um, and obviously, if you sell it before five years, you give up the last three months of interest. But still, if I have that cash sitting there anyway, losing money with inflation, right. well, why not put some in there? And so, if we find ourselves in this situation again, um, that when I'm eligible to buy again, well, maybe I'll do more of that. So I, I know that's a pretty low risk thing to do, but it still is opportunistic. Yeah. Um, so that is something very small that I'm doing that has some impact. That is nice. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's, I mean, it's all over the FI headlines oh, yeah. these days. Like everyone's talking about getting I-bonds. I, I'm like less bullish on I-bonds personally. Yeah. I don't love them uh, as an opportunity. Uh, like for me personally, I'd rather get it in the taxable, buy some, you know, equities with it. Right. And you're still buying, yeah. right? So you're in a different situation than I am where it's like, well, here's a little thing I can do that's low risk yes. to make some extra gains, even though it's not material on the you know, bolus of my portfolio, it's still something. No, I get it. Yeah. And if I were still trying to achieve uh, a bond position, my, you know, my bond position is now overweight. Like it's, it's nearing right. my, my band and I have a similar band as you 20% of the 30%. So I'm nearing my band where I need to start to you know, sell a little bit of that and load up on some stocks. But if I weren't there, yeah, I'd probably yeah. consider it, you know, but I just feel like the, it, it's more, um, I feel like I can control the tax hit on that differently because i don't know if i can really truly consider that a cash position for let's say loading it up for the next two years right so yeah. i'm going to start building a cash position and that's maybe another question for you but if i'm thinking about retiring in two years you know i need two years of cash or 18 months worth yeah. of cash that I'm if you doing. want to follow a similar strategy to to what i did and what fritz did yeah he's he's got three years i think i have two right but yeah i don't know i'm uh I, I prefer the capital gains tax treatment because when you when you sell the I bonds, right, that that interest is just going right to your your marginal tax rate. Right. Right. On the same note, I'm also you're you know, controlling that I'm controlling my income. Yeah. You know, there's a I think most people in the fire community or many people in the fire community are familiar with Go Curry Crackers series on, you know, the first hundred thousand dollars of gains is effectively tax free. Right. Um, we that's another thing we can link up. But, um, you know, if you could stay below that zero percent uh, capital gains limit, well, not such a bad thing. And managing your income is important yeah. not only for that, but also for in the United States. Uh, obviously, here we're talking um, your Affordable Care Act, your medical subsidies. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. so if that's something you're counting on, then that's another uh, consideration. Hey, Eric here with Two Sides of Fi. If you've been listening to Jason and I on the podcast, you may not be aware that we also have a YouTube channel. And quite often, we have supporting graphics, charts, information, and even a few outtakes that don't fit well in an audio format. So if you're into that kind of thing, you can find us on YouTube at Two Sides of Fi. You know, you're talking about bonds reminded me of this comment uh, we got on the show recently, and it was effectively... Uh, somebody are, w was saying, well, my position is effectively a uh, hundred percent stock yes. versus your 70, 30. And the way they were justifying it under current conditions was, well, you know, spy, you know, S and P 500 is down at that point, I think almost 14%, 13 point something percent. And these, whichever bond fund he picked, it might've been BND yep. was down 9%. So 
minus 13, minus 9, it's basically the same thing uh, in his words. So why don't you just uh, go stay with 100% stock? How do you feel about that? <laughs> well, I think you did the math on it, didn't you? Wasn't that your your comment reply? You know, the 70-30 allocation. I mean, you know, we're, we're doing this for a very specific reason. And that, that portfolio is not down nearly as much as the 100% stock portfolio. So that's right. And, and I'm not poking fun. I yeah, mean, no. honestly, first of all, percentages are tricky, right? You know, <laughs> relatively speaking, you know, one is down 40% more than the other. Um, but on, on the same note, I get how it feels like everything is down a lot. And that's because everything is down. But on the same note, this isn't just about total return like we talked about earlier. This is about, you know, managing risk appropriately uh, for the longer term. Right. And so we, we try hard as much as our brains are wired for that sort of instant input and reaction that we're not just managing today. Right. We're looking a lot farther ahead. Yeah. And I think this also makes a case for. I mean, here again, we're going to talk about optionality, right? If you get into a situation where you need to rebalance or, you know, things are, you need to make some moves. If you only have one thing in your portfolio, there's not a lot of moves you can make, right? There's certainly no way to optimize those moves. So for as much as I sort of lamented making that decision to, to go to a 30% bond position, it's helpful for me to kind of test it in a situation like this, where I, if I fast forward to where you're at, like, okay, hey, if I'm two years into this, like, I do want things to sell. And so it feels better knowing that that's an option I can take. I, I really do think it does make a, a case for, you know, having a bond position. And I, I think there was another comment related to that saying, well, you, how come you guys aren't into dividend, you know, paying stocks? And I mean, this is a comment we get almost perpetually Yes, this, it is. On this channel, I think a lot of people in the fire movement, like they think about dividend paying stocks because um, it's a feels like a consistent source of income. What what do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's one of those things where I really need to write a proper formulaic <laughs> response because it comes up so, so often. Yeah. But but candidly, there are people in the fire community or in the financial community in general who believe dividend stocks are in fact the cure all for everything yes that they will solve any problem you have and while there's nothing bad about having income right dividend income is a part of anyone's portfolio uh you know but the strategy of specifically picking funds because they generate high dividends as the main source or one of the main sources of income at least is higher risk than i have interest in yeah, because of course it is a math exercise at the end of the day that that balance sheet that valuation of the company has to reflect the payment of dividends. And, you know, people will tell you, well, no, 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 it does. The stock price doesn't go down in direct reflection to the dividend. Or if it does, it always comes right back. And that's not true mathematically. There's lots of history to look at. And yes, there are companies that more consistently pay dividends than other companies. And those are the ones get talked about. J&J &J comes up all the time, for the example. Aristocrats, right? Isn't I can see people typing already. <laughs> the aristocrats, buy the aristocrats. There are companies right. out there who have never, ever cut a di dividend. Because that's what I say. Well, oh, we get to a time like this. Yep. Companies are going to cut the dividend. What do you do then? And it's like, you know, it's it's a terrible time in the economy and things are costing more and you actually yep. need more money and you're getting less from your portfolio. So what do you do then? It's like, well, I don't That's buy right. those kind of stocks. I buy just the aristocrats. And right. you can buy an ETF of all the aristocrats. Um, yep. But, you know, look at the expense ratio on those. Like yep. that has a different set of costs. And it's, it's fine. I mean, it's just a judgment call, right? You it have is. to decide what is right for you. But also 
go into it eyes wide open, knowing that there's yes. no there's no free lunch. <laughs> That's right. And, and I, I like the way you put that. You're you're reading my mind here. I was going to say it's not our position to say someone's approach is wrong. Right. Um, I mean, if you if you, there's a flawed Ours assumption right, there, though. we're probably going to talk about, oh, yeah, we get it right all the time. That's why we have so many episodes about all the mistakes we've made. <laughs> but whether it's you know, really relying on dividend stocks for income, or I had a discussion yesterday with somebody about using extreme amounts of leverage oh, um, as a fire strategy. I mean, that is a legal thing to do, and it might even be mathematically something that you've decided is worthwhile. But from a risk perspective, I have no interest in that. And I am going to ask questions if you come at me with that as a, well, why aren't you doing this? This is the best <laughs> approach ever. Okay, I hear what you're saying, and I've looked at your example. But honestly, risk mitigation is an important part of what we're trying to achieve because we're solving long-term math here, right? So if, if I have and you have 40 or maybe 50 years of lifespan left, well, we can't be taking all these dice rolls <laughs> that might work out or they might go really wrong. So, you know, you and I are on the same page with, let's get fees as low as we can, yes. let's simplify the management of our portfolio and let's get as, you know, appropriate exposure to the market, let's diversify and let's be consistent in how we do that. And and that's that works for us and a whole lot of other people. If you are comfortable with a much higher level of risk <laughs> and a willingness to go back to work if you need to because you've tanked your portfolio, I can't fault you for that. It's just not the approach that I or you, uh, not speaking for you, but you've made this clear, are that's not what we want to do. Simpler is better, I think. I did um, I did want to mention that, and I, when you're rebalancing, there there's tax consequences potentially. Um, so if you're doing it in a taxable account, obviously yeah. you have to pay attention to that. And there's also costs to that. Yeah. Fees. So, you know, that's something else to consider. Um, I think reading those articles should make it pretty clear that you should do it, but maybe once a year is probably fine. And for me, like it always feels better to be opportunistic about it. And I know that's, that's not the best, but that is one strategy. It's like, look at what the market's doing and you're in there making buys and you can make something of it. It's like you kind of, I'm going to refill the cash bucket or I'm going to, you know, rebalance into something like th when it makes sense. I'm okay with that. Like fundamentally. Yeah. I know. Uh, I mean, if there's any, uh, financial advisors, uh, in our audience still, if we haven't upset them sufficiently at this point, um, they would probably say, yeah, that's absolutely market timing. Uh, be, be thoughtful there. Um, because you are, you know, you, are you, are you following consistent strategy anymore? If you start, you know, making, um, you well, know, changes, tell me this, what's consistent about, you know, rebalancing on your birthday? Well, I mean, if Other it's annually, you've, you've sort of going back to the studies we talked about earlier, you're capturing, you know, that movement, but, but you're not trying to micro do it. Right. But if there's no difference between like some, a strategy that's like quarterly or daily or what, like then. Why is opportunistic wrong? Well, I think the where the difference could come is from what you just said is on a on a fees basis mostly, but yeah. otherwise. But I'm doing yeah. it myself. Yeah, if you're doing it yourself and you're you know using funds that are you know free of fees for trades because it's at the same brokerage and um, then yeah the downsides are a lot lower or and a lot fewer. Like, and it's like I'm looking at a band, so I've got that rule set in place, so it hits right. the band, and then I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to do it here. 
Is that not, I mean, a, setting a band is naturally opportunistic, isn't it? Yes, but it's it's a it's a non-emotional way to do it, right? So I think that's the that's the merit of it. You're, so you have a rule set. If it exceeds twenty percent, I will do something. <laughs> okay, all right. So I guess I'm not opportunistic. I mean, I think you are if you're willing to do it. Like, oh, as soon as it as soon as it hits, I want to take advantage of that and do it. Yeah, that's well. In a down market, that makes sense. In an up market, sure. like if if your stocks are riding up, then it makes sense to wait longer. So you set the rule. Maybe the rule set on a on an upswing is different than the rule set on a downswing. What do you think? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think as long to your point, as long as you're cognizant of fees yeah. and uh, tax consequences. Yeah. I mean, what else, what more can you do? The only other thing that I really wanted to um, touch on Jay was this, this idea of like, I was feeling kind of demotivated about Phi yeah. recently and just kind of like, really? Um, not feeling like talking about it. And that might be a function of just like where the markets are going in the portfolio, you know, looking at the portfolio, it's like, Oh geez, I feel like I'm further away from Phi. Like retirement date risk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then we talked well, about that, that sense. in the last yeah. episodes, like Laura and I are like, oh, I don't know, should I take on more clients? Like I'm starting to have that discussion again. And, um, I, one of the things that, um, yeah, I didn't tell you, uh, I bought a boat. No, you definitely didn't tell me. Well, I'm, I'm guessing <laughs> You didn't buy a trawler. I bought two boats. They're they're small boats. <laughs> are they are they kayaks? Yeah, they're kayaks. <laughs> I do like kayaks. Oh man, yeah. So we've lived here in Maine on the coast for 22 years, and we have gone out in kayaks, you know, a handful of times with friends, or we, yeah. you know, gone gone on tours and things like that. And um, Laura's been talking about it for a number of years, and I we were just I was feeling like, oh geez, that's just putting us further away from the trawler, which I wanted. Yeah. And I could tell she was kind of like, well, why not? what are we going to do? Wait another four years or five years? Who knows how many years? And so right. one of the things that I was thinking about just to kind of get out of this funk was like saving is a skill, Yep. but spending is also a skill. And it is, um, I, it's a skill that I haven't been used to, uh, you know, I haven't really been building that skill for very long. It's easy to save. And, you know, we've talked about this before in the past. So I thought, okay, you know, I want to, get these boats and you know this will be a great experiential thing this summer we've there's a main island trail here so there's a couple hundred islands off the coast of maine and yeah. there's a number of them that you can just travel to this trail <clears throat> there's trails and campsites and it looks like a lot of fun actually sure um, and it's something for laura and i to do so we both like got kayaks and we're gonna do that and i was like the the moment i i bought the boats i was like oh you know, I just, I didn't feel good about it. it was no, so, so weird. Cause you took money out of the portfolio or you were, you weren't putting as much in, you know, like you feel like you're, yeah, I wasn't putting as much in. Yeah. And, and you know, we, I mean, we have this savings plan that we're executing on for our five number every month. That's a yep. certain number. And then because the 529 accounts are down and our son is going to school in the fall, our first college payment is due August 1st. And so we're not going to draw down on the 529. So we're redirecting some of the savings money to the college payment, you know, Got it. Um, and these, but I just want to say, these are all first world, world problems, yeah, but of they're, course. they're real to us right now. And, you know, when you think about saving for 529s, it's like, okay, that's, what's going to fund college. But we knew we started late on this and we knew they weren't yeah. going to be fully funded by the time they started going to school. So we thought instead of selling, the stocks that are in there, they're all in target date funds, but still they're down instead of yep. selling the stocks. We just redivert 
cash to that. So that's feeling Got tight, it. you know, and I'm like, oh, did I do the right thing here? And then my son's truck had a bunch of problems. So we just put a major repair into that. And it's like all these things are like, oh God, I just bought these boats <laughs> absolutely the wrong time, man. I'll tell you, I, I can actually identify with what you're saying more than you probably think, because we, you know, we had a trip we were going to take with friends uh, two years ago before COVID entered everyone's lexicon. Uh, we were going to go to Germany uh, and, and go to a couple different parts of the country with friends. And that got postponed. Well, now we have it scheduled again. We scheduled it, you know, just a few weeks ago and we we're looking at flights. And, you know, while we have a budget and vacation spending is very much a part of that because of what the market is doing, yeah. I was very much of the mindset like, well, I have some frequent flyer miles. Maybe we could use them and get some economy tickets Ooh. and like we could do. And Lori's like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> Look at like, why don't can we just at least get premium economy? Like, please. That's like, well, within the budget, it's not that much more like stop trying to use miles. Like, let's get these flights that our friends are taking. It's better. Like, just please spend. Yeah. And she's totally right. And I would say I'm still getting building that muscle. And it is talked about in the fire community a lot. Right. Like learning to spend. Yeah. Because my inkling is still like, well, Maybe we should cut back a little more, but I, I will tell you, I, I will give you, I, I, I'm going to give myself a, a pat on the back because I did what I talked about with you when you were out here visiting me and I simplified my budget. Oh, cool. I took out so much of the <laughs> granular tracking and now I have big buckets like shopping, <laughs> like, you know, financial degeneracy, Alcohol. which is just like, you know, dining out and, and, you know, beer and whatever, all that like fun stuff. And so it's collapsed. And so because I've like spent two years characterizing my spending and being good, I feel like, all right, I trust that we can do this. <laughs> and, and so part of that is just getting more comfortable with spending yeah. and knowing that we're being appropriately disciplined. But the the trip is definitely, I think, more similar to what you're talking about, where like make letting it feel good to spend um, even if there's a downturn because you're within the framework you set up. Yeah, that's, I mean, Laura kind of said the same thing to me. She's like, well, you know, we're we're still saving the amount we agreed to save you are. for retirement and we're still doing the college thing. And it's okay to have some of these kind of life splurges. And, and it's like, it's not even that much money. You know, she bought a used boat and I bought a new one. And so it's like combined total, it's not yeah. that much. And so one of the hacks that I used and I heard, I can't remember what podcast I heard this on, but, uh, someone said they were, they were feeling guilty about spending something. So all they did was they saved 200% of the cost of yeah. the item that they were, they were, um, saving for. And they put half of it into their you know retirement plan and they put the other or savings or whatever. And they put the other half into buying the thing. And yeah, so that's actually what I did. Um, okay. You know, so that feels okay. But also now having done that, I'm like really excited for the life's possibilities that that opens up. Like we're planning oh, all these trips now. Like we're looking at these, you know, okay, how far can we go? And it's just like this whole skill set that it opens up. Okay. You know, nice. like I, I love that about it. And sometimes there are these emotional barriers related to money um, that once you oh, get beyond totally. them, you're, you're able to see, a different life. And you know, money is, it's a means to an end, right? <laughs> like it is, it's not the end. 
it's not just having, it's not amassing the most. It's, it's about creating the kind of life that you want to live for yourself. And I, I'm so yep. appreciative that, I mean, it sounds like you have this too with Lori, that Laura is able to, you know, hip check me every once in a while and say, Oh yeah. Uh, by the way, <laughs> Lori has no hesitation in doing that. And she has the right to do it. So next step right is going to be it. like upgrading to first class, right? No way. Business class. Not happening. Nope. <laughs> not unless the market, uh, goes on a tear. And, you know, we're five years from now and we're, you know, I know as Karsten very correctly commented on a recent <laughs> video, which was exciting on one hand and terrifying that. on the other. You're never truly free of sequence of return risk, which he has written about. And he's absolutely right. Um, of course, the risk decreases over time. It does not go away. It does not flatten out. Um, but, um, you know, I would certainly feel better. Uh, a spending more, uh, increasing the, the budget as we've talked about before, if things go in that direction, but I didn't build the budget assuming that I built it, assuming other things. So yeah, we're yeah. going to have first class travel in there anytime soon. Nope. Nope. But, um, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe a special trip for an anniversary or a family event or, you know, something that could happen, but uh, no, that would not be our norm ever. Join us as the conversation continues next time on two sides of Phi. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating it at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For show notes, resources, and links to the video version, please check out our website at twosidesoffi.com.